Thank you for tuning in to the WAM Podcast, where women empower women in business and manufacturing. Morning, everyone. This is Rosemary Coates in Silicon Valley. I'm your host for this edition of Women in Manufacturing. I am the executive director of the Reshoring Institute, where we help companies and people bring back or expand their manufacturing in the U.S. I also run a global supply chain consulting firm called Blue Silk Consulting, where we help companies with global supply chain projects and where I also do expert witness work. On these podcasts, we interview accomplished women in business and ask them to share their experiences with us. And today, I am delighted to welcome my very special guest, Susan Schwartz, the president of River Birch Group. She's an accomplished consultant and a published author and has a lot to say about transforming experts into leaders. Susan and I both belong to a consulting organization in Silicon Valley called Silicon Valley Alliances, and that's where we met and we meet from time to time. So I know a little bit about her background. Let's start off, Susan. Welcome, first of all. Thank you. Uh, And can you start off by giving us a little bit of your background? I'm, I'm very interested in your take on leadership and the movement from experts and managers to leaders. But before we do that, give us a little bit about your background and how you ended up in this industry. Well, I started life out in the technical field. I worked for AT&T designing integrated voice and data systems. And I would get the requirements from the client. I'd work with Bell Labs to get the design together. I'd help with the proposal. And then if we wanted, I'd work with the union technicians as a liaison between them and the client. So there was a lot of project management, a lot of different communication. In fact, I was a project manager before I I knew I was a project manager. (laughs) And I got very involved with adult education. I went to work for a startup. They went public. It was time to move forward. I went to work for a global software company. And my role was to bring 10 different educational entities who were all siloed and separate together to work on a blended learning solution. And what I learned from that experience was that technology didn't drive business, people did. And that's when I shifted from technology, from the hard piece of business to the soft piece. And I got involved with project management and leadership because people make the difference. When I hear professionals say, oh, it's not personal, it's just business. I personally think that's a cop-out because business is personal. It's about people and how you communicate. And that's where I started getting involved with expert professionals, people who were so deep and knew their profession so well. I come from the IT world and that was initially my focus. Now I'm working with some architects, a chef, a financial analyst, and they're all common value is they're so expert. They are so smart and they were promoted because they were so good at their jobs. Nobody thought about their people skills or organizational skills. I think that's a really hard lesson to learn for people coming out of college because they work really hard or even like an MBA class or Mm -hmm. masters in engineering. You work really, really hard at learning what to learn and how to move forward. 
but you don't learn how to manage people typically. So, you know, that transition from I'm really smart and I'm really good at what I've learned to now how do I manage in the workplace and how do I develop relationships is, is tough. It's really hard. And in fact, that's the one skill set I've noticed across all industries that really makes the difference of getting a fast, positive start and hitting a brick wall right away is delegating. Delegating is so hard because nobody can do it faster or better than you can. So they end up micromanaging or they just throw it over the wall, say, good luck, bucko. I did it by, you know, the seat of my pants. That's what you're going to do. You know, or the third one is they just don't set expectations. And so then they're disappointed. And so it's really about helping them align their teams, let the people who work with them know how what they're doing fits into the bigger picture, setting their expectations about what they expect and when they need it. And that's the people management skill, the organization skills, that good delegation and even trusting. A lot of them don't trust other people to do it as fast or as well as they can. And so it's just easier to do it themselves. That's really a very, very important point. Because most of us, you know, if we want to get ahead in our careers, we think about what's the next step? Do I get to be a supervisor or a manager or an, an executive or director, something like that? And we are honing our skills in that area, but not the leadership skills. A long, long, long ago, in uh, when I was in grad school, we read a book called Mind of a Manager, Soul of a Leader. And it was all about that transition point and how you started, you really needed to think differently as you move forward through your career. So it's not a sequential step of getting more and more expertise. It's really learning on an upward scale how to broaden your skill set into leadership as well. So I think that's really important. And that's kind of the focus of your consulting area, right? Yes, that is my focus. And as you were just mentioning, the difference between a manager and a leader, one of the tools that I use in helping people make this transition is emotional intelligence. And I wish it was called something else, because it's really about being in tune with people. And I just received a report for a C-level type of person. And it was a fellow consultant who brought it to me because it just didn't make sense to them. And there are 15 attributes. The reason I like this assessment so much is the report comes out in color-coded bar charts. So people who are technically inclined who are looking at data can really see the data. And it makes those intangible leadership skills tangible so they can set action plans. And with the C-level, their highest attributes were communication-oriented. It was truly inspirational. How do you relate to people? How do you align those people with the greater mission? And their least involved skills, and they weren't terrible, they were just lower on the engagement spectrum was problem-solving, reality-testing, 
And it was really about execution. So if you think about the job role, that C-level person needed to inspire people. And it wasn't necessarily to execute. So managers execute. He wants to get some really strong managers who can assure the success of that execution. If it was his job to inspire people and execute, he is always going to be shifting his priorities. Are you being strategic or are you being tactical? And, you know, if you're trying to do too much, and there's all those studies now that say that multitasking is not so great, he, that person, I don't know if it's a he or she, that C-level person wouldn't be such a strong C-level person. And that's what I really like when I'm looking at these attributes. You can identify what position requires what attributes. And as a hiring person, you can look for those attributes so you can assure success when you're onboarding people and you're looking at retention and keeping that turnover rate to a minimum. If you get the right person for the right job, you're going to assure success for them and success for the organization. And that's one of the reasons I find this assessment so strong. So that's really interesting. So there's a pattern where you switch from being a technical expertise to putting more emphasis on leading and people expertise. I think there's another aspect too. So I remember back many years ago, when I worked for Hewlett-Packard. We had training to train management people about different skill sets. And one of them was because the company recognized they had so many analytical employees, right? So many engineers and people that were focused on the technical side of things. And uh, managing um, in high technology is a little bit different because you're managing the technology, but you're also managing these brilliant engineers. And mm -hmm. some people need to be managed differently from others. So, uh, you know, I think in, depending on the organization, if it's a company that's very analytically focused, very engineering focused, you may have to learn to manage differently than you would in, in say, another kind of industry. Oh, and that's, again, as we look towards emotional intelligence, it's really about balancing. You're observing behaviors and choosing the actions that you're going to take to gain or achieve that constructive outcome that you're hoping to make happen. And that's when I speak about engagement, different people have different strengths. So it's a five-level model. So the first level is the perception. Or if, say, you were a technical person being very analytical, what is the mission? What is the outcome of your project? And then the second level is self-expression. And that's exactly what you were just saying, Rosemary, is how do you communicate that message to the different people on your team? Because people will hear that differently and you need to communicate upwards to your leadership and what you're going, how you're going to frame it will be different to how you frame it to the people who report to you or to that colleague who you're trying to beg, borrow resources, because of course we never have enough time or people to get the job done. The third level is how you, I like to call it play well in the sandbox. It's how you bring everybody together to execute, to execute that 
goal that you're trying to achieve. And then the fourth level is stress management. Bad things just happen and you can't plan for it. They just, you know, COVID-19 was a bad thing none of us planned for. We had to figure it out really fast. And so when you have those surprise incidents, people look to the leader. So not only do you have to figure out how you're reacting to stress and adjust your behavior and take some deep breaths, you need to know how everybody on your team is reacting so you can provide the calm, the structure that they need to move forward. And that's, again, paying attention to what, how other people are reacting, how they're communicating, and how you can help them take that deep breath to continue forward. And that's that last piece, the decision-making. And especially in the technical analytical arena, people solve problems differently. Some folks love whiteboards and sticky notes and colored markers, and you're jumping around and and obviously you can tell how I like to solve problems. And then you have those people and they're not necessarily introverts. There are lots of extroverted people that prefer to go into another room, go back to their cubicles, go back to their, you know, home offices and think about, really reflect on what is the problem, logically analyze the situation, and come back with two or three solutions. And then they're willing to collaborate and listen. If everybody in a group of five brings two or three solutions, maybe four of them are the same. And it's so much easier to discuss six options, and they prefer that, to jumping around and trying to keep up with the loudest, you know, people in the room. And so you need to know how your team works. We know both types of people, right? (laughs) In our group. And it's good because we're all different. It also begs the question, I think, of the cultural overlay. Now, here in Silicon Valley, we have all kinds of cultures and attract people from around the world to come and participate in the development of technology. And I think being sensitive to different cultures and the way they interact must be very important as well. Yes. And I'd like to say, and one of the clients I'm working with now is a mechanical engineer for a manufacturing firm that makes electrical devices. And a lot of what they do is customize for different clients to customize the work he is also grew up in a different culture. And exactly like we were discussing before, not everybody is just like you. And so some of what we're working on is how he was brought up in his culture and how other people view the situation and how does he close that gap and communicate differently with different people. You know, his immediate supervisor has one personality, a senior person on the team has a second, and it's a small firm. So the president of the company is only, there's only one person between them. And so the president of the company will come and speak directly to him because maybe the his intermediate manager was busy working on something else. So this person's learning not only to balance the American culture with his culture, 
of birth, but he's also, and he's also learning how to balance different personality types who came from different organization cultures. And dealing with global manufacturing, which is what I do, you know, depending on where I am in the world, the cultures are so different that, you know, managing them or asking questions or trying to get process documentation, that sort of thing is very difficult. I mean, you have to be keenly aware of how people are receiving your message. So in some cultures, if I say, you know, I need the process documentation, that's terrifying. It's like, you know, are you accusing me of something or, you know, Mm -hmm. in other cultures, it's, well, that's our private information or, you know, it's, it's really different. And to be successful, you have to be keenly aware of that and introduce those ideas into how you're managing the situation. Exactly. It's a matter of reframing. And some people, written communications is not necessarily their strength, or English is a second language. And so they may not feel comfortable writing things down. There might be somebody else who prefers to write. So if you could pair that person who's truly expert, and they could talk and discuss with the person who's an excellent writer. That's that balance where you've got the knowledge and you pair them with someone who may not be as knowledgeable, though they are skilled enough to understand the jargon and they can write it down. And so as a leader, you can pair those two people. Yeah, what a great idea that is. So let me ask you this question. I think I know the answer, but let me ask. Are there natural leaders or is leadership strictly a learned skill? I believe that leadership is a learned skill. There are people who are leaders innately. Leadership is something that you practice. And as the situation changes, the environment changes, you're going to need to adapt those skill sets. I mentioned the mechanical engineer He is such an innate leader. What he needs to practice is how does he pull those thoughts out of his mind and execute it, put it into practice. And that's one of the areas that we're working together. So I do believe that some people are innate. On the other hand, sometimes you just get thrown into leadership. I wrote a book called A Project Manager's Guide to Becoming a Leader. And that comes back to that technical person who maybe somebody becomes ill, all of a sudden they leave the company and take a different job and surprise, you're a leader. And it's not that it's a matter of practice. You've never had the opportunity. And so how do you take that deep breath and start to take those steps forward and not be afraid of being seen as inadequate. It's okay to ask questions. It's okay to even ask people more senior than yourself who might be wondering, you know, why is that person, why did Susan get promoted and not me? And so being able to ask those questions and bring them on board as your advisors, you know, you don't have to do everything yourself. You do not have to know all the answers. And the secret that all of us leaders have that not many people know about is we're actually making it up as we go along. 
Uh, that's for sure. Right. <laughs> and, and so, yes, leaders, you may have innate proclivity. I'm going to guess 98% of the people with practice can become excellent leaders. I think it's really important to acknowledge also that some people don't want to become leaders um, and that follow, particularly in high tech, that follow a technical track. And that's what they want to do. They want to be research and development people or they want to be engineers. All they want to do, they don't want to lead anything. They don't want to manage anything. They just want to do their job. And it's important to have those people as well, to have those deep skills in in organizations. Yeah. Right. That's why I have that 2%. (laughs) Just I want to change the direction a little bit here. I know that you're involved in a Lego play, a serious play, Lego serious play. And I find that fascinating. And can you describe that a little bit for us and and explain what Lego serious play is? Yeah, thank you for asking, because it's such a fun tool. When many of us grew up with Lego, we think about building stuff. And my husband's an engineer. And every year they go into corporate They divide up into teams. They're given bricks and string and poster board. And whoever builds the the bridge that can hold the most weight wins bragging rights for a year. What Lego Series Play does is you construct metaphors. It is a matter of pulling the problem, that elephant in the room that people can't really describe, out. And it's helping, especially when you have different departments and they need to work together, and there's just something going on that there's a lot of blame and finger-pointing and dysfunction. And a lot of it is because they don't understand the challenges that each department or each of the managers are feeling. So what you do in a Lego series play, they say your fingers do the thinking. You've asked this big question, and you have one to three, maybe five minutes to construct something. So it might be... Actually using Lego blocks. Actually using Lego blocks. You have this huge amount across the table. I have 10 pounds of Lego and it has animals and different size bricks and little people. And so I think in our short time, let me go back to my husband because right when I got certified, I needed to practice. And I was practicing with him and a couple other people from different fields and organizations. So the question I asked was, how do you communicate with your team? And how does your team communicate back to you? And my husband very simply made a table, put little chairs around it and had little people sitting on those chairs. And then he made a huge, a tall, tall tower, maybe tower, maybe 12 inches of Lego blocks. And then he had a little Lego person at the top and a little sort of trapezoidal Lego that looked like a computer. And I said, well, what does this mean? And he was very nervous because other people made very complex constructs and his was very simple. And when I asked him to share his story, he said, The little people around the table were he and his colleagues. So when there was a problem, because there always is when you're an engineer, that they pull together and they collaborate. It might be long distance using Microsoft Teams or 
you know, Skype or Zoom, but they all collaborate together to discover the problem. He said, so what's this little person up on this tower? He said, that's headquarters. Because when there's a problem, they only communicate down, fix it, or you're over budget. And they never listen to the second answer, that they only communicate via email. And they don't really want you to respond in any way except fixed. Can you imagine if the HR and C-level people heard that? Yeah, and that's really interesting that you learn the perspective and then and then hopefully get on a pathway to solve the problem. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And that's the magic of Lego series play is that when you get these different organizations together who have challenges, I worked with somebody who was an accounting manager and his was an international shipping company. And apparently there's very low margins. And so the only competitive edge that the salespeople have is to give longer pay terms. So they were selling 90 and 120 days. The accounting was given bonuses, their metric was how quickly you could collect the money. And they needed to collect it in less than 60 days. And so what they discovered was their metrics were conflicting. And sales was angry with accounting when they wouldn't give permission to extend the collection timeframe. And then accounting was upset with sales because they might go above their heads, get permission to give those terms. And then accounting got into trouble because they couldn't collect the money and it wasn't their fault. They were working as effectively as they could. And so when you hear that story, when people build their constructs and they share that story, the next step is to say, well, what would it look like if you could fix it? And They might be moving their constructs around. They might build something new. And what's wonderful, what I find the most powerful is everybody agrees on point A. What is the problem? Or I should say challenge. We don't have problems in technology. It's always a challenge. And then what is the proposed solution? So everybody agrees on point B. The toughest part is getting from point A to point B. The difference is, is now you're moving in a parallel track as opposed to starting at different places and wanting to end up at different places. And you sort of cross in the night. And that's the power is you're opening the situation up to conversation and collaboration so that everybody can buy into the solution. And if you've bought in and you're a unified vision, then you've got all these multiple perspectives that can build on each other, that want to work together, that see the value of working together, as opposed to being siloed, not wanting to work together, and pointing fingers at each other. And in fact, I've had a very long career with lots of problem solving and troubleshooting. I just heard somebody in one of the workshops I run use tell me, what blame? They said, what do you know the definition of blame? And I was thinking for a moment, and they said, be lame. And when you point fingers, you're being lame. You're not creating a conversation, and you're not trying to move towards 
a solution solving collaboration. That's what I thought was just wonderful is Lego series play does not let you point fingers. It makes you listen. You have to listen to each person's story. And then together, when you understand that story, you can then have that empathy and work together to create that solution. Terrific. Thank you so much. That was really interesting. So, Susan, we're running out of time here, but thank you so much for joining us today. It was really interesting to talk to you. Can you give us your contact information if anyone would like to reach out to you? Oh, well, thank you. And I appreciate you hosting me this morning. It's been a wonderful conversation with you. And uh, my website, you can reach www.expert2excellence.me. That's expert2excellence.me. My email address is susan at riverbirchgroup.com. It's the tree river, B-I-R-C-H group.com. And my phone number and everything is on my website. Perfect. Thank you. So for our audience, you can listen to more podcasts on the Women in Manufacturing website, which is www.womenandmfg.com. And you can reach me, Rosemary Coates, at rcoates at reshoringinstitute.org. And visit our website, www.reshoringinstitute.org, where we publish all of our research on manufacturing in America. Thank you, everyone, and have a great day. Thank you for joining the WAM podcast, where women empower other women in business and manufacturing. For more shows like this, go to whampodcast.com. That's whampodcast.com. Thanks for tuning in. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com. Thank <laughs> you.